Private Lender Podcast, Episode 26. The Private Lender Podcast quote of the day comes to us from Pete D. Barnum, who said, Money is a terrible master, but an excellent servant. This is the Private Lender Podcast, the show that shares practical advice and know-how for new and seasoned lenders, from private mortgages on single-family houses to joint ventures on commercial projects and beyond. Discover details about investment vehicles that you won't find at your local bank or online broker. Listen and learn from private lenders and real estate investors, as well as from professionals and entrepreneurs, as they share the details, strategies, and the insight that allows for successful and prosperous lending. Now, get ready to increase your ROI. Here's your host, Keith Baker. Greetings, Lender Nation, and welcome to another episode of the Private Lender Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Baker, and I'd like to thank you for sharing your most precious asset with me today, and that is your time. This is episode 26, and today I speak with Ray Sasser, who is a heavyweight, heavyweight, a big hitter when it comes to single family investing in the greater Houston area, and now he's spread out all over Texas. But before we get into that interview with Ray, I'd like to go ahead and thank our sponsors, which, oddly enough, is Ray's RIA Meetup Group. The Private Lender Podcast is proudly sponsored by the following. The Realty Investment Community of Houston, or Rich Club, is the premier real estate association in Southeast Texas. The Rich Club provides its members with the education, resources, leads, and networking they need to earn more wealth with their real estate investments. The Rich Club has helped thousands of real estate investors realize their full potential, and they are ready to help you. Visit their website at richclub.org for more details. That's richclub.org. 713 Houston Area Real Estate Networking with Landon Rothstein and Ray Sasser. Come out and experience one of the fastest-growing meetups of real estate investors. Visit privatelenderpodcast.com slash sponsors for more information regarding 713 Houston Area Real Estate Networking Meetup. And now, back to the show. Okay, so who is Ray Sasser? Well, Ray's been around a long time. He's seen a lot of things. He's sharp, and he's a good person to know, especially if you want to learn about real estate investing. It just If you just get anywhere near him, you, knowledge just kind of oozes off of him, and, and you can collect it just being you know in close proximity to him. So I was really excited that he agreed to be on the show. And so now... Without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Ray Sasser. We are honored today to have Ray Sasser on the program. Ray, welcome to the Private Lender Podcast, and thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Keith. Ladies and gentlemen, Ray Sasser is an icon in the Houston area real estate market. The first RIA meeting I ever went to, Ray Sasser spoke at. And he wasn't. He later went on to serve as president of the Realty Investment Club of Houston. He's also part owner in Alamo Ria in San Antonio. He's a part owner or co-owner of the Seven One Three Meetup Group, which is a sponsor of this show. So thank you very much, Ray, for uh, your sponsorship of the show. And you, Ray, you've done over one thousand rehabs. Is is do I have my numbers right? Over a thousand? I don't know. That's a guess. <laughs> we, we've never stopped rehabbing our very first house we bought in 82. It was equivalent to about a hundred thousand dollar rehab in today's dollars. And, um, we just never stopped. We always rehabbed. And then early on, I mean, our very first house was a triplex. And so, um, a big part of what we owned, we kept, and we ended up 
you know, a lot of times uh, you'd have turnover. When you start getting a few rentals, you'd have turnovers. So we were doing that. And so we were buying. And my brother, Audie, was my partner in the, most of those rehabs. And so he was a key part of that process, too. It wasn't just me. In fact, I think that real estate investing is, is a team sport. And you just, you it takes a team. It takes a team to do all the different parts of it. So I've just been blessed by having good partners like Audie and now with Charles and Landon and Sharon and San Antonio, it's just, you know, it's just, I couldn't ask for better partners because they're all go-getters and, and um, it just makes life a lot more fun when you're, you're really engaged and you're doing a lot of stuff and, and you're, you're making nice things in the process, like a nice house for people to raise their family in. I like that. The team sport aspect. Cause uh, you know, when it comes to lending, and and investing, whether you're you know you're buying the house and fixing it up and borrowing the private money or being the private lender, it takes a team to help you be successful. And I like that you give right off the bat, you're giving credit to Audi and and, and your and your other partners. Uh, but listeners, and my out wife there, and your oh, of course, <laughs> well you have to. That's partner number one. Yeah, we've been married. We've been married 27 years, and um, when you're a Type A personality, you're not the easiest thing in the world to live with. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's amazing that she's put up with me as much as she has. And she, it takes a, like a, what do they call it? A, um, a suspension of belief. There has to be a lot of that going on because you see the vision, you go to these things and you hear other people and you hear case studies and then you come home and you say, look, we can do this. We can do this. And then they're like, okay, I don't know. I don't know. That doesn't make sense. And so then you got to do it four or five times. And then all of a sudden people believe you can do things. Yeah. Well, I don't want the the, re, the listeners out there to be fooled, Ray. You're you're more modest than than, than you should be, but yeah, I, I do like that. You're um, a little bit of history. I had I had Chris Funk on early, very early on in in this program, and Ray Sasser was one of the references that Chris listed, and he was the first person I called. Really? Yeah. And because I wanted <laughs> I wanted to know who you know who who's loaned you money before. And when I saw the name Ray Sasser, I said, like, oh, wow, that's, you know, that's, uh, that's impressive. So I called, I called you and you actually answered and I could hear it in your voice. You're like, damn, why did I pick up the phone? You know, but, but you, <laughs> <laughs> that is not true. I didn't know. I know I'm, I'm teasing you a little, but you know, I, I, I asked you simply, I said, look, I'm, I'm thinking about loaning money to Chris Funk and you know, what can you tell me about your experience with him? And, and, and you said, you know, he did everything that he said he would do and he, he kept his promise and he you know, paid back his loan on time within the terms. And it was really your, you know, your, you saying that is what kind of got me over my initial hump of, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take that leap and I'm going to loan him a, a good chunk of my retirement money. And so, yeah, I don't know if you knew that or not, but that's, that's how I got into uh, no. private lending. Yeah. Was, uh, and I called another one of his references was a banker who essentially said the same thing. And the third person never called me back. So, but I figured, you know, um, well, trust but verify. But if Ray Sasser saying somebody did what they're supposed to do and would loan to you, know, you said you would loan money to him again, then I figured then that's that's yeah. pretty high authority. So um, that's how I got in. You know, I got in from you know basically you you were coaching me without even knowing it. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> well, one thing is what I'm learning is uh, even like with tenants. I mean, I've had tenants make me mad as hell before, and uh, but it's a small world and you, you can't burn bridges 
if you find somebody like a superstar like Chris, you just try to stay as close as you can and watch them because you're going to learn something from them. And, um, and just keep your friends close and, and you can do, it's never about the deal. It's always about the relationship, whether it's a buyer or seller or tenant or anything else. And you keep these people close to you and they enrich your life. I mean, they keep giving back, you know, it's like, how did I deserve this? What did I do to make this happen? Because these people, they got your back and, and you can pick up the phone if they have special talent. They're more than happy to share with you. And I, I just love most of the people I know. That's the relationship I have with them. And I just I just love to be able to reach out and get help when I need it. Because I'm and I think you have to be the same way. You have to be willing to give that to you can't you can get around people and you can say that's a taker. That's a taker. That's a taker. And then you get around other people like Chris and they'll give and take. And that's that's the kind of relationships you want to build in this business. And that that holds true with. Uh, private lenders and borrowers. I've I've heard private lenders say really mean things about borrowers, and and it's the borrowers that make make this merry-go-round go around. They're they're out there with the, they're buying it, they're taking a gamble, they're working late at night, they're making mistakes, they're struggling, they're losing money, they're having to sell it, they're 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 making all these pieces work, and then uh, then you get these private lenders. Not all of them, and probably not even most of them, but some of them, it's like they have a disdain for the for the borrower. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You, if the borrower doesn't have the tools or the skill to perform like you think you should, first of all, that's kind of on you because you didn't evaluate that right. And then, secondly, it's your responsibility to pull him up and make him better. I'm assuming he's a you know, that borrower is a good person and not a crook or a thug, but we have a responsibility to make all the people around us better. And that borrower, if you're a private lender, could he's either going to bring you into more deals, give you more opportunities or um, borrow more money. So it's a win-win proposition. Couldn't agree more. And like you said, it's win-win and it just because a borrower stumbles, you know, not every deal is going to go a hundred percent smooth. And you know, no, my, it's my, incredibly hard. Yeah. And you know, my mom has always said the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So uh, I always keep <laughs> that in mind when, when I'm looking at a borrower, but yeah, I, I, I like that attitude. You know, you, you, I'm not saying go lenient and not foreclose on somebody if, if they're not performing as, as agreed, but you know, I'm, you know, there's, there's a nice balance. Like you said, it's not about the deal. It's about the relationship because what, what I liked about private lending is, you know, unfortunately I, I just, when I say, unfortunately, I have a job that I actually like and it pays me a really good salary and gives me some nice benefits, but it precludes me from being out in the field every day at houses uh, and, you know, trying to, to, to chase down the gas company so they can turn on the, you know, the pilot lights and right. the furnace and everything. So private lending for me is a great way to, to be still be involved. And it, it's a great gateway because, you know, maybe I'm only making seven or 8% on a loan the first time I loan to somebody like yourself or Chris Funk or another investor. But as time goes on, you build that relationship and then it becomes, well, instead of just doing a loan, why don't we just JV on this deal? Why don't we, why don't we joint venture? And instead of creating a loan, we'll just create a piece of you know, that, that, that lender, that private lender will buy a piece of the LLC, for example. And it just builds, you know, all great things are accomplished by standing on the shoulders of giants. And I, I don't, I don't think it's any different for real estate and private lending. Um, 
to be able to, you know, start off with just loans and then, you know, on a single family. And then, you know, years later, you could be buying apartment complexes or commercial buildings, uh, you know, if you wanted to go that route. And it's all through those relationships and, you know, listening. Yeah, because those people are out there, they're learning in real time and they're growing and they're getting better. And those people end up being uh, your friends. They're the ones that can help you do things. They're the ones that a lot of times in investing, you have 80 or 90% of the pieces and you're missing that five or 10%. And you don't know, um, you don't know what that's going to be a year from now, but you just know that you may need help with it. So you, you've got to build these bridges and keep the bridges steady and firm. And then you can reach out to these people and they'll come through for you. We get deals all the time where people just say, well, you've got a good reputation or whatever. Will you help me with this? And next thing you know, you're JVing with somebody because you can fill in that gap for them. So yeah. I love I love the concept of just thinking of partners as long-term relationships. And, the, you know, in these, in rehab, if we're thinking in terms of like private lenders and you're taking a property that's not performing, it's not performing for a couple of reasons. It's either maybe more than a couple, but it's usually it's going to be a rehab issue and the property can't perform the function it was designed to, or it's uh, design obsolescence where or functional obsolescence where property no longer serves the market. For example, you know, a house built in the forties is going to be a two one. So you've got to change that. You've got to rehab it or upgrade it. Uh, and so you know, you're going to need private lenders for that. You're going to need good rehabbers and, um, or it's a bad management. And then we, even with bad management, it means that you're going to be spending a lot of money. And so you need, you need private lending for that. And so I think you think of people, if you think in terms of partners, your lender, if you're a lender, your partners are the contractors and the buyers and your stakeholders. And if you're a contractor, your partners are going to be the sellers um, the buyers, the lenders, and of course your stakeholders, whoever they are. So you got to constantly figure out how to develop those relationships, build those relationships. You can't buy in slow motion. You have to, you have to buy fast if you want to be competitive and, 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 and do more deals. And so you've got to put those things in place. You've got to build that relationship with a private lender before you know him. And you got to, he's your partner. So He's got to be taken care of. If 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 a private lender is involved in one of my transactions, and I think anybody that's doing lots of deals, the private lender gets paid first. That's just the way it goes. And and you pay the private lender first. You, he makes his money because he's the golden goose that, or the goose that lays the golden eggs. And and if I'm the private lender, I, I got to think in terms of the rehab rate. He's his job is ten times harder than mine. So I've got to figure out how can I make them better? Does he know what a, a scope of work is? Does he know how to do contracts with contractors? Does he have, does he know how to calculate those repairs and this holding cost? And I, it's not because I want to beat him up as a borrower. I just want him to be successful because if he's successful, uh, I'm going to get more and more opportunities with him in the future. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more on that, on that front. So, you started in 82, so you're a spring chicken. Obviously, you didn't make it. Yeah. You didn't hey, make it. my birthday Saturday. I'm going to be 62. You're welcome to come over. Really? Saturday? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 62. We do our host out. Landon and I and Simon, 
Nguyen have a wholesale class on Saturday, but after that, I think I'm going to try to get Simon and Landon and a couple other people to come over. So you should come over. There's going to be adult beverages and and that kind of stuff and did, food. Did you say adult beverages? Yes. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll see if I can't stop by. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, happy birthday! But uh, so I, I'm assuming um, you know you don't get to. And, hey, and by the way, I got. I got three empty bedrooms upstairs, so you're welcome to spend the night if you if you're not able to drive home. Are you suggesting that I may I may over imbibe? I don't know. I don't know. I have a tendency to overdo everything. So if you're like me, yeah, you probably will. That's a that's a safe bet, Mister Sasser. But uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I heard about. I heard. I did get some um, intel about y'all's trip in Cancun. Um, yours and Landon's. Uh, yeah. I heard some stories. Yeah, that was, that was fun. We did the vacation with Mitch Steven down in Cancun and I was the yeah. only, only guy either smart enough or dumb enough to, uh, <laughs> to take the, the whole family, which the, the kids and the wife, they had, a, they had a good time and the kids got sunburned and, and, you know, everything else. Um, Ooh. Uh, well, that's what they, my kids love the beach and I'm, I'm a sun shunner. I'm, I'm very pale. So I, I tend to try to stay away from it all, but we, um, uh, Landon and John Jackson and I basically, uh, once it started raining and lightning in the pool, they closed down the pool bar. We, um, we, we kept the bartender busy for a few hours. I'll just, I'll just <laughs> leave it at that. And, um, I will say that the, hey, the isn't it fun though, to hang out with people with common interest and, and it, it is fun. We don't have to be competitors. We can actually work together. Well, that, that was the- make each other better. That was the beauty of the whole trip. We had there were real estate investors from, you know, all over the country. I mean, from Phoenix, from Florida, from uh, Chicago, yeah, Iowa, and obviously a lot of people from Texas. But you know, nobody was had a chip on their shoulder about giving away secrets. You know, they were very forthcoming right. with you know, uh, uh, well, when when your owner financing or creating a note, and you know. They, the, the guys like, look, if you're not charging an origination fee, something you're you're leaving money on the table, and right, he's right because the banks are going to charge it, loan brokers are going to charge it. So, even though you're owner financing, you're trying to help somebody out who's not bankable, so to speak, or mortgage ready. You know, a half a percent, one percent origination fee is not a crime to charge. Uh, you know, a, a borrower. So th- that was just one aspect of it. Uh, and then there, were, you know, there was another. There was a uh, uh, Connor Steinbrook. He has a, he has a podcast. I'm going to get him on here as well. Uh, I think it's Investor Army. You know, and we we're just we were just talking shop about microphones and, and whatnot for the for the podcast, but also with yeah with with deals and rehabs and you know wh- what Harvey did on the east side of town and you know we had a Landon and I have a house that we sold owner finance that that flooded from Harvey and now we're having to take it back unfortunately, but we gave the guy as much time as possible without you know penalizing him. And because, because, you know, Harvey came through, uh, but he's, you know, he's going to walk away from it now and we're going to try to do a, a deed in lieu of foreclosure so that we don't have to hire the lawyer. And, you know, if he does that, I'll, you know, I'm willing to help him, you know, give him a couple of bucks to, to move out and leave the house in good condition so we can sell it again. But it was, yeah, no Cancun. And I'm going to have, um, it's a great little prelude because I am going to have some episodes uh, of, I did some interviews while uh, I was in Cancun. I haven't listened to all of them. Most of them, I was sober and coherent. So that's uh, the guests may not, 
the guests may not have been, but at least I was. So I'm going to, I'm going to put that out, but it was, it was a, it was a really good time to, uh, just, just to, just to network and to, to talk shop with people in a very casual environment. And even though there were gurus and coaches there, you know, there's no sales pitch. Nobody's running, telling you to run to the back of the room with a credit card, you know, for this limited time. Offer. Right. Just real easy going. And, you know, you, you, I, I learned it's like having a seminar and it was an all inclusive hotel at the Hard Rock in Cancun, which uh, is really not my style, but I'm, I'm not going to lie. It was it wasn't bad. The food was pretty good. Um, the the whiskey was really good. It was was nice. So like, I can't. Yeah, I don't do good in those environments where it's all inclusive. That's not a good a good matchup for me. <laughs> oh, you got to go next year. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, um, so so back. To, so you got started off. What were you doing in 1982 when you did your first? I, I assume you had a day job back then. What were you doing? I got um, out of, uh, I joined the service when I was 17. I got out when I was 21. And then I went to work for Burroughs, which was a mainframe company. And so we would work on mainframes, repair them and support them. And I did that for, from, I guess, 78 to 88. And so I bought that house in 82. We finished it in 83. And then Audie and I went on and bought several more houses up until 88. And then in 88, um, Burroughs was shrinking, so they did. They gave packages to anybody that was willing to take a voluntary layoff, and I took it. And so I got some severance pay and stuff like that. And I thought, well, that's a lot better than getting laid off. So I took it. And then up to that point, Audie and I were holding houses. And then at that point, we immediately started flipping houses. And then a year later, his wife quit his job, and she was a, our bookkeeper. And then a year later, Audie quit his job. And so two years after that, we had everybody, everybody had gone from that to buying and fixing up houses and managing our rental properties and that stuff. And then uh, I guess, I don't know when that was, maybe five or six years later, uh, Jan and I got married. So, so then all four, and she had a job and kept that for two or three years. And then and then she quit her job and started working. She would do like the bookkeeping, or not the bookkeeping, but the um, uh, insurance and taxes and that kind of stuff. And also some of the listings. And so the four of us pretty much were partners up until, I guess, six or seven years ago. And then, you know, our family dynamics have kind of changed. And we still own a lot of real estate together. But then, you know, we were also doing stuff independently, too. And so we kind of went our own own direction, although we're still partners on a lot of things. And so that's what we've done. We've had, um, you know, you've said like the thousand rehabs. It's probably pretty accurate. We had, um, I've had one crew, which is a, a three-man crew. We had worked for us for 18 years. I had another guy work for us every day for 12 years. I mean, there was, there were years where we never missed a day of, work on some rehab somewhere. And one of the things we did real early on is we ended up with some small apartments and then we did a lot of major rehabs like fire damage and stuff like that. And that always allowed us to keep people busy. And so if we bought a, say we had a huge fire damage house going on or say apartments, we always had the contractors close to us to where we could get those guys to go over and do this two week rehab or three week rehab. And so it's, it's been pretty good. And then, um, 
you know, there wasn't hard money and there wasn't private money when I started. And so if you're starting now as an investor with the way technology is, the way leads are, in in some ways it's bad just because it's more accessible, data is more accessible. But this idea that you need money to get started, you don't need money to get started um, in real estate. You just need to have a good plan and you got to be committed and just get an outcome that you're supposed to get. And I mean, it's, in my opinion, it's never been easier to be successful doing real estate. And now, that, I mean, there's the date, the information, just understanding what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. You don't have to invent that. That's already been pretty well documented. I mean, just, just like with your podcast, you know, having this technology available and having anybody able to dial in and listen to somebody that's done you know, a lot of anything that's worth its weight in gold. Agreed. Agreed. It, it, it yeah, it's, I mean, I, I never thought I would ever have a podcast, you know, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I remember when I was, I was in high school, my dad bought a VHS camera uh, so that he, my, my, my sister started her family. He wanted to videotape the grandkids. And so, you know, we took it and I did my senior English you know, project with the VHS and sat there and spliced it all together. And, you know, now I, Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. And then now I'm like, you know, I'm in, I, I'm telling the kids to go upstairs and be quiet. Cause you know, daddy's going to record and I'm, <laughs> I'm in, basically in the den with a microphone and a computer. And it, it took me, I could have done it quicker, but I, you know, from, from inset from, from idea to kickoff was, was a little over 90 days and I, I could have done it quicker, but, um, I'm I'm kind of stubborn, and I had to I had to learn a few things the hard way uh, to get to that. That you know, we, but. when I was doing the uh, market report, I would look in 2007. The real estate market pretty much crashed, and we survived because we had equity in houses. But and we didn't have a lot of cash flow. But our this op, flipping option just disappeared, and so at that time a big percentage of the hard money lenders disappeared overnight. A big percentage of the wholesalers disappeared overnight. And like Jack Miller once said to a guy in a room that I was in, he said, the guys that are uh, flipping and the guys that are wholesaling, they're not here anymore. They're gone. And every time we have a cycle, they go, they, when the builders go, they go. And so um, we Definitely want to figure out how to be real estate investors and hold on to things. And in 2007, that's that's kind of what saved us. And we just we just need to make sure that we you know going forward that we have a good strategy. Um, we got now we have something that we never had before. And and like I said, when I was doing those market reports, I didn't realize this, but I knew that I had to become smarter at what was going on with the market and where to spend my time and energy. And one of the one of the data points we pulled up doing the market report, and I don't know if this is common knowledge or if you talk about it in some of your other podcasts, but banking is changing. Banking is dramatically changing. It, it, and they, and we looked at the data and there's statistics out there and it shows how much banking is moving from the professional institutional lender to the mom and pop lender. And you look at how many trillions of dollars are sitting into uh, self-directed, IRAs and Roth IRAs and 401ks, self-directed 401ks and uh, defined pension plans. You look at that and you think this this world's changing. And so, like you doing um, a podcast on this subject, it's really needed because 
these mom and pop investors, they're not stupid. And they all of us live in a house, for example. So we all know what a good house is supposed to be. We all know when it looks right and smells right and sounds right. And we kind of all know how to figure out what the values are. So just this idea that private lending is now available to the masses is just, it's there. And as long as you do the basic things in your due diligence, you figure out how to uh, vet your contractors and, and you know that they know what they're doing, or at least you give them tools and show them how to do what they need to know. And you get your ARV right and you get your, your title insurance right. You get your casualty insurance right and do your LTVs right, your loan to values. It's, we don't need these guys anymore. We don't need the bankers driving the $80,000 BMW um, making the majority of the interest on our money. You know, this is something that's accessible to all of us now. It's, it's really a wonderful thing. And it's not going to lessen. It's going to grow. Uh, yeah, exactly. That's the, the whole purpose of this podcast is to, to one, to, to uh, br- you know, bring awareness to people, number one. Number two is to help them learn how to, to, to lend and to vet deals and to vet borrowers successfully and, you know, mitigate the risk in there. And he talked about, you know, having, getting the ARV, the after repaired value, the loan to value, the insurance, all that, you know, goes in and, and part of the lender's team is, you know, having the insurance agents, the cl- title agents and, uh, you know, uh, brokers or uh, I should say agents or some type of access, but even you really don't even have to have MLS access anymore to, to get a fair idea of what something is worth. But I, I couldn't agree with you more. Things are changing. We we're, we're living in fascinating times and the banking industry is just one of the things that is, um, is changing. But I, I want something you said earlier when, you know, when you said, you said when you started off, there weren't private lenders and there weren't hard money lenders. So I'm curious, how did you finance your deals? early on in the, in the eighties when you were getting started? We, we would borrow money from the community banks. We had a little money. When I, when I quit working for Burroughs, I had like $30,000 in the bank and I was single and you know, I could live in a car. I'm fine with that. Well, I'm not, maybe not fine, but I don't need, I don't need, I don't need uh, high, um, high expenses to survive. I mean, I'm just fine eating. In fact, my kids, when they were growing up, uh, they'll tell you they didn't want to go with me to work because we would go to stop and go and get a hot dog, two hot dogs for a dollar and a big gulp. So, uh, I was not, you don't want to go to lunch with me if you, if you're expecting a good lunch. So, um, but so I was kind of frugal and, and I knew I could last a couple of years on $30,000. And so it was just a question getting money for deals and we would either partner with people or we would borrow money from like the community bank. Um, we had a pretty good relationship with the community banks and I'm a big fan of community banks just because they're local. They listen to you. Um, now I don't know how much y'all know about it, but when I started the RTC, the real estate market in 82, the interest rates were extremely high. Mm -hmm. So we were, we would, um, get money to, and buy house. We would turn around and sell it on owner finance, and then we would turn around and sell that note to somebody like Metropolitan Mortgage, which was a billion-dollar company at the time, and they were buying these notes at discounts. And um, it's something we talk about sometimes, like if we do a two- or three-day class with our students, but what we, what we do is show you how to calculate these yields. So if you're a lender, how you loan money, what your leverage is, all that stuff, you need 
you need to be able to figure out how to put that in a calculator or a spreadsheet and look at your yields and go through some what if scenarios and say, hey, if I do it like this, my yield's 14%. If I do it like this, it's 7%. You know, so you need to be able to compare apples and oranges. But um, I mean, I was, the, I was the rehabber on the other end of that equation. I wasn't the guy playing the money game. I was playing the rehab game. And we would take we would buy the house for say 50 cents on the dollar. We'd turn around and owner finance it for a hundred cents on the dollar and maybe get 10% down. So the, say the loan was at 90%, then we would sell that to metropolitan at 75 or 80%. Sometimes we'd do a, what's called a partial where we would sell them. There's a thing as a note buyer called ITV investment to value. They can't, if you're smart, you don't want to go over what the investment to the value is. And so they were limited by those numbers. And so they would, they would decide, Hey, on this house, I can loan you 30,000 or 50,000, not loan you, but buy $50,000 with your income stream. And then we would take that money and we'd make a little profit on it. And then we'd just go buy another house. And so that's how we did it when there was no money. But we also tried to borrow from the community banks because we were pretty active even then. Um, and so that's what we do. And, um, then all of a sudden, there was a guy came along on the radio called um, Money Mortgage, and that his name was Ted Murray. He's a real estate attorney, and he was the first hard money lender that I ever knew of. And I want to say early '90s, um, he was a um, hard money lender, and they would charge ten points. I borrowed money from him either once or twice, and I said, I don't need to do business as bad to pay 10 points. 10 but points. That was the going rate. Yeah. And so that was the going rate. And they were, what was interesting with money mortgage, and this is my understanding of what happened. I'm not, don't, if you're out there and you're listening and you're an expert on money mortgage, then if I'm wrong, then correct me. But um, what mine, we would, I did a couple of loans, but I learned early on is become friends with the lenders because when a deal goes bad and you have a reputation of someone that can fix it, they'll turn it over to you. They don't, they're not interested in making a profit. They just don't want to lose any more money. And so over the years, I've bought lots of properties from hard money lenders and some from private lenders. Um, uh, and I don't even go in there trying to beat the, the hard money lender up or private lender. I just say, if I can, if I can help you, I'll help you. Here's what I think you should do. If not, um, then sell it to me. If you're going to sell it to anybody, sell it to me. And I'll, as long as the numbers make sense, I've had I've had lenders, hard money lenders, some that all of us know. Actually, they'll take a house back, and then they'll turn it over to me, and then I finance it on brother-in-law terms because they just want that property performing again, and they don't want to take a bath on selling it, you know, at a real cheap price. So. They'll end up giving us good finance terms. Um, but anyway, to go back with money mortgage, yeah, we did a couple points. And then I, I said, Ted, you know, I can't afford to pay this anymore. And he didn't need me because he had people standing in line to borrow money from him because it was kind of new. He was, as far as I know, he's the only person doing it. Well, there was another company I never did business with called uh, Golden Mortgage. And they had a reputation for loaning money and they charged quite a few points. But with Ted, we ended up buying three or four properties from him. And what, what happened with them, and this is my understanding, in 2001, they 
they had a program. They had so many people standing in line to broker their money for them. They created a quick refund or a quick buyout. In other words, hey, Keith, if you want to put $100,000 up with our company, uh, we will we we will guarantee that we'll return that money to you in a certain amount of time. And I heard somebody say three days. I don't know if it's true or not. So their lenders, they were guaranteeing that. And then on the other end, they started getting into bigger and bigger deals. And so they started doing small apartment complexes, large apartment complexes, industrial stuff. And then they started getting into development. And if you know anything about development, first of all, it's not a sure thing. And secondly, it doesn't happen overnight. And there's not there's not real value there until it turns into whatever it's supposed to be. And not, you know, if they're tearing the dirt up and doing engineering on the dirt, there really isn't that value there until they actually get something done with it. You know, they got to finish whatever phase they're at in order that for that to have value. Right. And when nine eleven when nine eleven hit a big percentage and it might be only have been 5% or 10%, they demanded their money back. And, and from my understanding, uh, money mortgage couldn't give them their money back because they just had too many um, projects going on. You know, they were doing some developments and stuff like that, right. not them, but their borrowers and they got stuck. And as a lender or a borrower, at some point, if you're a borrower and this is just, this is just a guess on my part, but I've seen it in other in other instances. If you're a borrower and the money there's enough money at stake, you're going to try to collect your money um, before somebody else does. And so you're going to, if you're smart, you're probably going to be real aggressive if you find somebody's in trouble and you want to try to get your money before they do. Um, you better be dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's because <clears throat> um, you could get in trouble if you're that lender. So, and that's exactly what happened. He got in trouble because, and like in anything, you you can't always dot every I and cross every T. Right. So you just have to be, as a lender, you just have to be careful. I would say, don't get into uh, things you don't understand. If you if you're going to go out there and build an apartment complex or be a lender on apartment complexes, you need to know what you're doing with that. The advantages of doing houses is we already is the data is so accessible on houses. I mean, it's very easy if you know what you're doing to either have somebody on your team give you reliable comps. It's very easy to get a reliable estimate of repairs. It's very easy to work with people who have track records. Um, and so, you know, just stay with what you know and and don't grow too big or too fast as a private lender. Because you can absolutely. get in big trouble fast. No, absolutely. I mean, and I say with, with first timers, you know, my first loan was to Chris Funk. Had a great, stellar reputation. I yeah, I recommend people when I when I see at Rich Club or whatever, and they say, yeah, I want to partner with somebody. I said, well, you know, there's there's Ray, there's Linda, there's you know, um, there's Landon, there's you know, all these these people who have several, several, several dozens of deals under their belts. You know, they they know what they're doing. Not now, do they lose money from time to time? Maybe. No deals ever perfect. But starting right. off, starting off, go, don't go to your brother-in-law who says, "You know what? I think I'm going to flip a house. I've never done it." You know, don't. I stay away. From, stay away from that. I mean, for, on, on several fronts. But you know, if if somebody's new, I always tell them if you're new and somebody a new rehabber or a new landlord wants to come to borrow your money, tell them to go to a private. I mean, a hard money lender because that's what they're there for. Let them let the yeah. hard money lender work, walk them through the process. And as a as a new private lender, I say go find people who are experienced. 
And, you know, except right. if it means accepting only 6%, 7%, take it, but watch what they do. Learn from them, you know, and, and I, I told you fun, learn so much so fast. Exactly. You just get involved in these deals and you just be shocked at how fast you learn this stuff. Yeah. And then the next thing you know, you, you, you're, you're spitting out, you know, you're kind of regurgitating some knowledge and it surprises you. It's like, oh, wait a minute. I, I did learn something here. You know, like it's just not, it's yeah. not coming from a seminar or the, you know, the 2 a.m. Uh, tax auction, you know, uh, stuff for uh, $20. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, you, you can, and, and, that's, that's and then expand from there. Just grow slowly. Don't, don't buy big chunks. So you like a first time rehabber. A lot of times people will say, they'll start telling you about deals and they're fixing to do a hundred thousand dollar rehab. And like I tell them, you're not capable of doing a hundred thousand dollar <laughs> rehab. You don't know how to estimate it. You don't know. We had a deal where um, a wholesaler wholesaled this house to a guy and the, and he, and it's a, a good friend of mine and he's totally ethical, did everything by the books. I mean, it, the values were there. He told me the numbers and he said, look, the rehabber is getting in trouble. Can you just go by as a favor and just evaluate what's going on. See if you can help the rehabber out. He's willing to do anything. He just like, he's in a hole and he can't get out. So I drove over there and the rehabber, it was a hundred thousand dollar rehab. He was an engineer. So he's one of those kind of guys that, you know, if he doesn't know how to do something. (laughs) Yeah. And, and he, but he could study it real fast and learn real fast. So anyway, I got over there and it was a sure enough, it was a hundred thousand dollar rehab. He'd spent about eighty thousand dollars at that point and he got about thirty thousand dollars worth of work done. Oh and I and I yeah, and I said, How are you gonna get out of this? Because you're like fifty thousand dollars upside down and you still have like seventy thousand dollars in rehab to do. And and then we went through there, you know, basically item by item and said, Well, what'd you pay for that? And I, and I said, Well, you know, the, it isn't three fifty for the going rate for that work. It's a dollar twenty-five for the going rate. And that's what you should have been paying. And so like if you get in a fifteen thousand dollar rehab or you're a lender or a borrower and it's a fifteen thousand dollar rehab and you're out by, you know, twenty percent, you can eat it and you can make it. But if it's a hundred thousand dollar rehab and you're out by twenty percent, you're gonna go under. And there was and uh in that particular case, I couldn't even I couldn't even get a word in edgewise because the guy knew everything and i just said well i don't know what i can do to help you i mean these are what these are what i'm paying i've been paying this is a going rate you know you need to look at that and that's how you should be when you're working with your contractor don't use their uh don't use their contract uh make sure their scope of work is done and clear make sure that you know exactly where they're supposed to be when you do draws you know, if if they're supposed to have this stuff done when that draw's done, then have somebody like a Kevin Smith who's inspected, God knows, 15,000 houses. Kevin knows what he's looking at. And there's other people too, but get somebody on your team as a, as the, as a rehabber or a private lender. And, um, you know, don't pay to, don't get, don't ever get upside down. And I, and I get upside down all the time, but it's, there's two things when I get upside down. One, it's a knockdown drag out fight. And two, it, it's usually not by very much. And that's what saves them. But when you get upside down with big numbers, you're, you're in big trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's it's something you have to be careful for. And that's, and that's why I appreciate you coming on the show and, and, and talking 
about these topics because you can't, yeah, you can lose money. And, you know, I always say that, you know, with real estate, you know, it doesn't always go to zero like a stock can, but you can lose money. And the first thing I like to teach people or tell people the most important rule to private lending is ROI, return of investment. Then you can talk about how much money you're going to make and, you know, the yeah. return on your investment, but get that money back first, that, that principal amount back first and foremost. But um, so, okay, so you started through, you know, had some money on your own, you borrowed from- Hey, Keith, banks. can I add something yep. real quick to oh, that? Oh, sure, sure. So there's two guys when we started, uh, when I guess I'm going to say 85, I was by then, or maybe 86, by then I'd probably done like 15 deals, I don't know, whatever. We started learning about land trust, for example. And I remember me and Tom Pike and another person, I won't say his name, but um, three of us went and we pitched in our money and we went to hire an attorney to help us write a land trust that would be valid in Texas. And we picked the wrong attorney and the attorney just, he just like, well, if you do this, this could happen. And if you do that, this could happen. And, and, and if it were to go like this, it'd be real bad and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, it was like Mr. Negativity. And Tom turned to me and he said, well, I don't see, I don't hear him saying any reason why we can't do this. Let's do it. <laughs> it's like, now that's attitude. You know, you just, it's good to talk about the bad stuff because you don't run from problems. You run to the problem and you identify it, you address it. It's not complicated. You just stay in a place that's safe. Make sure you have the five or six things done as a private lender that you need to do. And you're going to do wonderful. And then after you get eight or 10 loans under your belt, then move outside that comfort zone. And, and it probably won't be outside the comfort zone anymore because you'll understand and you'll be, you'll be more connected and you'll be more involved and see what that person's doing. And, and I'd, I'd say like, if you're my private lender and you want to know anything I'm doing, my, my phone's open to you at all times. I want you to be successful. I want you to make lots of money. And I don't need, I don't need to beat you up because if I take care of you, you're going to take care of me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love that attitude. And that's why you have, that's why you're successful. One of the reasons, one of the many reasons why you're successful, but you take care of your private money. You treat, you know, their money is your money. And you know, it's, it's kind of a graphic saying, but I like, you know, I want to borrow who would cut their own throat to make sure I get my money back first because I will loan to them again you know, if they take right. care of me and, you know, after, obviously after they get out of the hospital and they get a few stitches, but I'll, I'll loan to them again, you know, I, 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 and there's lots of people that will do that. Yeah. You and, just got to find good people. Exactly. Exactly. So how did you, how did you get introduced into private money and borrowing from, from private lenders? You, you mentioned uh, Tom Murray that, you know, the hard money lender back in the nineties uh, in the community banks, but how did you get, uh, when, when did private lending come into your world and on, under your radar? Uh, I don't, I can't even think of the first private loan that we did. It was probably in, um, most of the time we've borrowed private money. It's been around friends and people that I know, um, you know, you make friends at these RIA groups and stuff like that. Uh, one of the things that like with our students, they think, oh, it's all about getting the deals and stuff. But if you're serious about becoming an investor, there's two things that you need to start working on immediately. And that's uh, um, nurturing and building private lenders and nurturing and building a lead machine where you can get leads. And if you can put those two things together, you're going to, you're going to make deals. And then as you get better, the deals will get better. Um, 
Keith, I don't know the answer as far as like the very first private loan I did, but it might've been like some sort of partnership or something. There's been several private loans where people, um, I'll give you an example. We have one person that we know his, his office was real close to our office and this guy had worked with his hands his whole life, but he'd also had like 25 employees and, but he was not a technology guy, but he, he knew how to read people. He knew how to look at something. He felt comfortable that if something went wrong, that we would give it back to him and he would just finish it himself. So that particular private lender, uh, I would give him numbers and information and you could just see his eyes glaze over. And it's like, I don't, I don't, you know, right. You're a good guy. I don't care. Just do it. Don't even tell me about it. And he would literally go to the bank and hand you the money. I said, no, no, you can't do it like that, Robert. You got to get a note and you got to get a deed of trust. I can get hit by a bus. And if you're not secured uh, or I could file bankruptcy, if you're not secured, you can't even get them. You can't even get your money back. And so you have to, um, uh, you have to build a rapport and you have to build a trust. But then also you have to take care of that private lender. And a lot of times private lenders don't even know how to take care of themselves. And so you have to make sure that you do that stuff right. If I were to get, say, divorced and I didn't make him a secured party in that deal, he would have to fight with my wife to get his interest back in that property. And he couldn't even do it because he's not even secure. And so you've got, we don't know what the future has for us, except that there's lots of, lots of twists and turns. And as a lender, um, it's pretty, it's pretty set on what the rules are as a lender. And the, as a lender, especially on commercial property, Dodd-Frank really didn't affect that. As a lender on commercial property, you just got to make sure, you know, and we can go through it real quick. You've got to make sure that you have a promissory note that says what it's supposed to say. You got to have a deed of trust that does what it's supposed to do because that's your document that gets recorded. You got to have casualty insurance. You got to have title insurance. You got to know that the ARV is right and you got to know the repairs are right. If you can, if you can figure those things out, it's almost impossible to fail as a private lender. And as a borrower, you better make sure that you're right on those numbers because most of my lenders don't know as much as I do about, about the due diligence on the private loan stuff. So you've got to, you've got to teach them. You've got to help them. You don't, uh, I've had it where uh, somebody says, Ray, what do you look at this deal? What do you think of this deal? And they show me an MLS printout from a realtor and it shows three comps. And I, I'd say, your realtor doesn't care about you. Your realtor is lying to you. Your realtor should give you all the data. Your realtor should let you make an informed decision because when you're successful, that realtor will have more than one sale. He'll have a lifetime of sales. And it's the same with a private lender. Give him more. And the other thing is, when it comes to private lenders, if you're a borrower, think in terms of um, that um, they always have advisors. And as an advisor, um, you've got uh, not me. You might be able to fool your private lender, but you're probably not going to fool their advisor. So it's just and it's just short sighted. You're never you, those people never stay in business. And if you're a private lender, if you beat up your borrowers and you don't help them out, and you don't bring some value to the table besides the money, um, they're not going to use you next time. And if, if if you play stupid games with them and you take all the profit out of the deal, um, that private lender will use you once or twice, and then he's probably not going to participate with you anymore. 
I mean, that, not the private lender, but the borrower. The borrower. Well, yeah. And, and then, yeah, he's going to find somebody better. So, so you got to bring value, I think, to the borrower. And a lo- I've got one friend that's probably he's done twelve hundred private loans, and twelve hundred, and he's a big percentage of those people are repeat users. And so he builds that trust. He builds that relationship. Uh, I did a deal with him once where I needed uh, $20,000 on something we couldn't get title insurance on. And I just said, I need $20,000. And he said, okay, Ray, you're good for it. He wrote me a check for $20,000. There was no security instrument, nothing. And, but this, this is a sophisticated uh, lender. He, he'd done hundreds of transactions at that point. And what it was is we were buying a note from a mortgage company. And there was no way to make this work. We had to we had to buy the note quickly because they were about to foreclose on it. So we had to buy the note. We couldn't get title insurance. We couldn't get possessions of the documents until we sent them the money. Um, and you know, we pulled it off. Everything went perfect. But as a private lender, and as you get more sophisticated, you're going to do things that in the beginning people tell you not to do, but then they're going to create the best numbers for you. Yeah. No. You I, know, for example. For example, let me give you an example. What if you owned a property that had a title defect that you couldn't repair, but nobody could ever take that property from you? Would you ever loan on that as a lender? Given and the classic wisdom is no. But I mean, I've got, I've got more defect? than one, title, one property that has title defects, and I've been collecting rent on them for years and years and years. And I mean, 20 plus years. And did you, so, you had loans at the, on those properties? Uh, no, but with 713 RIA, and this is something you and Landon and I talked about, we're forming a funding company and the funding company is the purpose is not a hard money lender, but the funding company needs to, there's lots of things that happen in real estate that you can dramatically reduce your risk and um, get involved in transactions that have incredible yields on them. And that's not something you do when you start, but it's something that when you have a history of doing it and you, and you experience, if your yields are so good that you, even if you took one out of 10 of those notes and threw them in the garbage and you still made a lot of money, you'd have to say, you know what? I want to, I want to play a little, I want to play in that uh, bucket too. Sure. The first, the first time I had that, that, um, that thought in my head, like, you know, it used to, my thought, my original thinking was, Hey, I need, I need a billion dollar company to insure it. And of course, what is title insurance worth? Who really knows until you turn in a claim? <laughs> um, but you, you know, you have, um, you have the title insurance, you have a casualty insurance, you have all this thing and, and everybody wants everything to be perfect in life. And it can't be, you know, we have to figure out how to control our risk, manage our risk. And I was at a thing with Jimmy Napier, who uh, he wrote a great book called Invest in Debt. I think if you're going to be a private lender or you're going to buy notes, you really want to do that. And Jimmy said that he puts he puts his investments kind of mentally in three buckets. One is the no risk bucket. Then he's got the medium risk or low risk. And then he's got the high risk. And he said, I make a lot more money with with all my losses included in the high risk bucket because I know how to control and manage my risk. And as you get 
as you get more sophisticated, just like you said, we're going to do a deed in lieu of foreclosure. Well, when you say that, you're you're taking a position that I'm going to go in there and personally manage this. I'm going to I'm going to talk with the people. I'm going to buy my way out of it. That's getting into some pretty sophisticated strategies right there. But you're staying in it. But you're also increasing your yield dramatically than if you force a bankruptcy. I mean, force a foreclosure. Then the guy potentially could file bankruptcy. Your yield's going to go down. So you're saying I'm going to pay a little more upfront. Maybe counsel with a person and try to make this work. And so Jimmy said, it's the three bucket concept. And that third bucket is on the high risk stuff, the things like say wraparounds and subject twos um, that almost like a subject to almost never gets called, but it could get called. But if you have a plan of, of let's say you just had to throw that away, you had to throw that deal away and you lost your $20,000 that you had in it, but your yield is in the 30, 40% range. How many of these 30, 40% deals do you have to do before, um, uh, before you can willingly throw away, not willingly, but <laughs> throw away some of these things and still have good yields. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, yeah. So that as a private lender, you have to get started. And I say, start with the simple stuff, but as your level of sophistication goes up, um, you're going to find you're doing things that maybe other people wouldn't do, but because you've now done them and you've got close friends that are doing similar things because you're, you know, part of a bigger network than just yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to say, sure, I'm willing to take that risk. I want to take that risk because my yield is so high. Yeah. And I've noticed as I get into, you know, uh, investing and lending, you know, my, my circle of friends changes and they, they also uh, become more and more sophisticated. So I have a, a support network, people that I can ask questions to, you know, have you, have you done this before? How did it work out? And when I was a landlord and I had a tenant file bankruptcy, you know, I called all my landlord friends, you know, how, how do I deal with this? <laughs> you know, this guy's going to happen to me too. Yeah. yeah. You know, this guy got five months of free rent. Wait, you're a tenant. You're a tenant. You can't file bankruptcy. That's what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they can. But apparently, they there was, yeah, there's and a I'm, federal judge that told me, no, he can file and you're going to have to wait. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I had a tenant file. uh, I filed an eviction against a tenant and um, they filed in federal court for a stay of execution because he's a vet. And so you got to have good friends. You know, that's that's the whole thing of 713 RIA. I've always been a part of a RIA. It's always done me right, because in that room, when we like we'll have a couple hundred people at our meeting a lot of times. In that room, there's always experts. In, in fact, when that happened, I said, anybody ever run across this? And a guy stands up and he says, yes, I'm, a, I'm an attorney and I'm registered to, to represent people in federal court. And I know exactly what to do in your case. I said, okay, don't, go, don't leave this room until I get off the stage and I can talk to you. And, and that's what it takes. I mean, you just hang out with people that are doing things and you'll see what works and what doesn't work. There's so many ways a private lender to do JVs and to increase their yields and to protect themselves. The sooner you get in, the sooner you'll have this under your belt and the, and the more fun it'll become. Absolutely. It's a fascinating, fascinating field of investment uh, to say the least, but I've, I've got to, I've got to go back. I want to go down a rabbit hole because you, you asked, you know, a title defect, you have a, you have a property with a title defect, but nobody can ever take it away from you. So what was, what, 
is an example of a title defect that on the house that you you own. It's obviously cash flowing uh, pretty well. And if it has a title defect, I'm imagining you're getting it for far under 50 cents on the dollar, which increases your yield substantially and your, your, your return on investment at an incredible amount. But what, what type of title defects uh, were you there's talking about? There's all kinds. Yeah, there's all kinds of defects. There, there's defects where uh, we had a property where the uh, it was one of our students. It, it's, it's kind of complicated, but there were three properties contiguous right next to each other, and the seller signed the deeds. And they uh, there were two sellers on the th- on the deeds. It was like a husband and wife from 1950, and the and the husband didn't sign off on the middle property. They're long gone. Their heirs are gone. And there's nobody's made claim to that property. The person they sold it to since 1950 has been in possession of that property ever since 1950. Nobody's ever come back, never made a claim. Nobody ever is going to make a claim. And if we had to, we could uh, uh, go back and do adverse possession because we did have color of title. But why do that? I mean, if you want to market it one day and sell it, then sure, then you can do that. Um, But this particular one, the first property that we bought with a title defect, the person was, I met the brother, two brothers, and they're like in their 70s. And the one brother died, his only living relative. I met him. I met him in a in a restaurant talking to him, good old boys, you know, just hardworking. In fact, he was a World War II vet. And, um, and so I'm supposed to buy the property from him and he died uh, right before we bought the property. And I said, well, you just deed me, you know, deed me your interest. We never even did an airship affidavit and he deeded my interest. And that was 19, I want to say 1986. And I've been collecting $600 a month rent since 1986. I paid $5,000 for it. Um, I don't know. You figure out the yield. I don't know what that is. Yeah. But if if you came to me and you had that same facts position, and this is what the money money bucket with 713 is supposed to do. If you came to me with that same fact situation, I would say, hey, uh, how much you need? Here's your $5,000. Do it. Yeah, I can see that. Definitely. And if if you're a private lender, you there's all kinds of things. Like if a guy's a wheeler dealer, you say, well, I'll give you that, but can you put some other kind of collateral up? You know, it's easy. Sure. You can do a blanket mortgage. You can add another legal description. Hell, he could give you a jet ski or something. I mean, if it's that small amount of money, it doesn't have to be much. Or you could say, well, let's do a JV and then I'll take a percentage of the deal to cover my risk, and you get the you get the lion's share of it. You know, there's a participation loan, but so there's lots of ways to make that stuff work. And so, in my opinion, you don't want to run from title problems. You want to become a title expert. You want to figure out how to make title work. Absolutely. We just closed a property. In, I just bought a property in San Antonio for literally. What is twenty thousand of one thirty five? What percentage is that? What percentage? I paid twenty thousand. It's supposed to be one one thirty five. So, and it's got a title problem. And I'm probably, in fact, it's almost like a, a lifetime and my it's a generational estate asset because my children could probably never sell it, mm-hmm. and it's and so they will be forced to rent that 
for their lives and their children's lives. You're going to force your children into being landlords. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and by the well, way, quick math. Might, there's about, ways to sell it. But. Yeah. Quick math tells me that's about 15% that you're paying 15. Cents okay. So yeah, so that's, that's what we pay. That's we got another situation in Corpus where, um, um, the lady is just refuses to sell her us her hat because psychologically she's emotionally drained on that property. Meanwhile, the tax, the state's going to take that property. So we're going to end up taking that property. We already got the deed from half owner and we're going to take that property and we're just going to fix it up. And we'll have the half owner uh, sign over her interest and um, sign a couple other documents for us. And, we're going to take it. And, and that's a little bit riskier than normal on the title problems. But I sat down with that lady in Dallas. Well, let's see. It wasn't Dallas. It's somewhere north of San Antonio. I sat down with her for like two hours talking about how um, she's never going to sell that property. She's never going to sign a document on it. She's divorced her brain and mind from that property. She has no interest in it whatsoever. And she's mentally walked away from it. And, and it was, you know, it was, she went through a major trauma as a kid and her sister stole a lot of, lot from her. She's not going to do anything to help her sister. So, you know, so what do you do? You just let that property go back on a tax sale. There's so many, there's so many things that you can do. Um, and the bottom line is if you can get some control of it, you may not be able to sell it, uh, sell clear title on a property. So don't just don't sell clear title. If you give a special warranty deed or general warranty deed, you'll have problems, but, um, you know, so don't do that. That's, uh, that's, but that's title stuff. You're, we're supposed to be talking about private. It, it was, that, that's some, yeah, we, that's, that's some pretty sophisticated. Stuff. I did ask for it though. I did want to know uh, <laughs> uh, about that. I, I fully, I fully take responsibility for that because it's, uh, you, you said the conventional. Wisdom. I think the key is the bucket. Is a bucket in a private lender start out in the bucket where you get six to ten percent yield, and then figure out how to move to the middle bucket and figure out how to move to the other bucket because maybe one of the smartest guys I've ever known in my life on real estate and notes said that's what you should do so don't listen to me listen to him his name is jimmy napier jimmy napier yeah no i agree you crawl before you walk and you walk before you run so that's and pretty soon you're doing sprints yeah yeah well you are mr crossfit i'm gonna throw i'm gonna throw you under the yeah. bus there. yeah 61 <laughs> years old 62 years old this week and, and, and still doing still doing crossfit and so. i'm sprinting with i'm sprinting with 25 year olds and 30 year olds and i can not keep up with them <laughs> i'm still sprinting <laughs> Hey, you're out there. You're doing more than I am and more than what most people do. So that's, I think it's great. Hey, can I tell you something about a sprint? Sure. Well, a sprint, if you don't know, a sprint is an all-out run, nothing back. You you run so fast that you're not even sure you can get your other foot in front of you before you do a face plant. So a sprint is you give it all. Okay. And what's interesting is like when you're sprinting, like we'll do at CrossFit, we'll do like 10 sprints. We'll a sprint for a hundred yards, rest for a minute, sprint for a hundred yards, rest for a minute. And what we do on those sprints is the first sprint will run like 50%. Everybody runs at 50%. And the second sprint, maybe 50 or 60%. Third sprint, 60, 70. Fourth or fifth sprint, you know, about 80. And around the fifth or sixth sprint, we're running a hundred percent. 
And I think that's, if you're, if you're going to be a private lender, that's what you should do. You should do the exact same thing. You should, uh, and, and then you will see that when, if you try to run a full force sprint on your first one, you will land on your face and mess up your face. So don't do that. But if you kind of loosen up and you got to get relaxed and you kind of learn what your expectations are and what's expected of you, um, before you know it, you can really run hard. And it's kind of neat. You can, you can see that happen in a very, within about a 20 minute period when you're doing 10 sprints. But I think it's identical to everything we do in life is go easy. Don't push yourself. Don't get in a big hurry. Uh, and just do one or two. You, you'll learn probably 40% or 50% of everything you need to know on the first one. And then the second one, you'll be at 70 or 80%. And the third one, you'll probably be at 85 or 90%. And, and as long as you stay in a safe place, that's all you need to do. You know, you don't have to be an expert on this stuff. You just got to get started. Just get started, stick with it. And, and, and your expertise will, will build as, as you, yeah. as you work through. Hey, and hang out with other people that are doing the same thing. Well, that's it. You know, Stephen Calvin of, of Zeus Morgan, who I know, you know, quite well, he, he's, he has a phrase, you know, proximity is, is power. Knowledge is, knowledge is good, but proximity to people with knowledge is power. Yeah. And that, and it's, it's so true that, um, you know, so when you, when, you know, my advice to people, whether they're investors or, or, or private lenders and newbies, you know, go to the RIAs and, you know, just don't offer to take somebody out for coffee, offer them something that they can use. You know, if you can provide a service to somebody at a right. extreme discount or something for free, you know, if it's, you know, it, 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 for you, I would like, I would, I would show up at 713 RIA and, and volunteer to help set up and, and whatnot, just to be around you, Landon, to, to, to hear the conversations, you know, Charles and Simon about the wholesaling, for example, you know, there are ways to, you know, get closer to people and, you know, you're not just a taker. You, you, like you said earlier in the show, in this episode, right. you give and, it, but you receive so much more back and, and then you, you start to build your team, you build your, your, your circle of influence, your circle of friends. And, you know, so that when, if you are a landlord and that tenant does file bankruptcy and wait, that I don't own the note. This is, you know, he can't file bankruptcy on a, on a lease. <laughs> and then, you know, I have an eviction. Yeah. I have, I have a, a justice of the peace says I can evict this guy. And the federal judge says, uh, federal court trumps the justice of the peace and you will oh, yeah. cease and desist and you have to let Well, I know in. exactly what happens. The, the constable goes out there and says, oh, I can't do nothing. He filed <laughs> bankruptcy and that's it. You're Ooh, done. That's it. Sorry, Mr. Landlord. So anyway, well, Ray, we've, uh, I hate to cut this short, but uh, we've been uh, going at this a, about an hour and I'm, I, I'm just, I'm just going to have to have you back on uh, at, at some point in time because you have, uh, uh, dropped just uh, a ton of golden nuggets here that I haven't uh, been able to explore all of them, but just, um, you know, from the title defects that I love the sprint analogy for private lenders. And I liked also how you talked about how you treat private lenders. And I think a lot of borrowers need to, to hear that because if, you know, if somebody reaches out to you on Facebook uh, and they have a really good looking photo and, you know, I can borrow from, you know, from 5,000 to a million, or I can loan that much, you know, you need to stay away. But private lending is about the, like you said, the relationships, investing in real estate investing is about those relationships. And I'm, I'm curious, but before we, we kind of close it down, it, any parting shots of wisdom that you can give somebody who was, uh, who wants to become a private lender 
you know, maybe they got a good, you know, they're an architect or an engineer, they got a good day job, but what kind of advice could to, 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 to get them, to get the ball rolling? What could you, what could you tell them? Um, I think you got to believe in something before you can actually take action. And the only way you can believe in it is see it with your own eyes. So, I, you know, Landon and I did that. We have the platform called 713 RIA. We do that because it's when you go in there, you're surrounded by doers. I mean, there are a lot of people that are maybe not doers and they're trying to learn, but I'd say the majority of our audience, uh, not majority, but a big percentage are doers and just you got to be around them and you got to find out one of the things we try to do in that platform is do real case studies of where people did deals and where they, where they did things that worked out really good and where they also made huge blunders or maybe minor blunders. And then you get to know them. And then because it's real informal, you know, when they sit down or when they take a break, go talk to them and find out how they did it. What did they do? Um, And we try to bring those kind of people uh, to that platform, people that are actually out there learning under fire, and and I think that's what you got to do. Is you've got to go where they're at. You've got to talk to them. You got to find out if they got. Um, if you came to me and said, Ray, I'm I'd like to maybe be one of your private lenders. Can you show me some of the stuff you're doing? What am I going to say? Of course, <laughs> you know we yeah. you never have enough money. So I'm going to say, yeah, we're going to be over at this house. I'm going to go buy this house today, or our rehab crew starts over here, come over here and just follow me and I'll show you exactly what they're doing. Landon and Simon would do the same thing. I'm sure you would too. Mm-hmm. And that's what you, you, you got to get. And, but I mean, it's like the law of reciprocity. You said, Hey, I'm going to help you. If, it, if you can show me how it makes sense, well, of course I'm going to, I'm going to show you if I can. I mean, if there's any way I can get through to you, I will. Yeah. And I know that's, and that's, I mean, listeners, you can take that to the bank. I, I, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten emails from people or text messages. Um, and, you know, the, the Woodlands, for example, are north, is north of Houston. And Ray took uh, one of his students that had uh, gotten, uh, had a deal on a very large house. And something that I didn't know, because I grew up on the southwest side in, in the Sugarland area, there's a lot of stucco in the woodlands and within five minutes of walking in and, and race kind of starting the class, you starting the class, you know, your first question was this house is in the woodlands. What, what's the condition of the stucco? And lo and behold, <laughs> yeah. there was an inspection and your student had to go back and negotiate the price with the seller a little, you know, to bring it down a little bit because now all of a sudden yeah. that, that scope of work changed significantly. And, you know, when you have a $600,000 home that you're purchasing at 300,000, you know, 10% is a lot of money. You know, that's a big swing. And, you know, if it takes $35,000 to get everything sealed up and made right, then, you know, you have to go back and, and, and do that. So and I think that's one of the benefits of, you know, going to the 713 meetup and, you know, being around people like yourself and Landon is you, you get that, you know, and you didn't even charge I and mean, you just, you know, you put it out there and, you know, your partner at the time had Facebook live going and, and it was, uh, it was quite a neat deal. And you know, we're, you're right there in a house, the carpets pulled up, there's cat pee everywhere, you know, <laughs> you're, you're in it, you know, there's, there's no mistaking that. Um, but, um, if, if somebody wanted to do, you know, meet you at one of those houses or become your private lender or just learn more about the, the meetup and whatnot, how, how can people get a hold of you? Just Ray at RaySasser.com, S-A-S-S-E-R, all S's like Sam, Ray at RaySasser.com, or text me, 
8717. Wow, you're a brave man. And then, of course, 713rea.com. Our next meeting is Wednesday at 125 Airtex. And uh, it's a lot of fun. It's a good meeting. It no, it it is it is and it's one of the fastest growing. I mean, it's you get good guests, and you know, it started uh, it started with just really it was just your, your office and Landon's office getting together for lunch. Well, if you don't know Landon, I'll just tell you he's a bulldozer. I mean, Landon goes a hundred miles an hour all the time, and it started out with just him and I and our office and his office meeting because we wanted to talk about best practices. You know, how do we how do we all do better? What's our process like if we're retailing a property? What are our steps? And so we just thought, hey, we'll get everybody together once a month and share our ideas. And then somebody said, well, let's invite a few more people and then a few more people. And so we went from from, you know, basically eight to 10 to 20. So then we moved to Los Cucos and it went from 25 to 75. And then we moved over to the hotel and now we've been averaging around 200 people a month. Yeah. But it's, I mean, it's, it's grassroots things. It's just, you know, a street level type meeting. This is not big high pollutant philosophies and theories. It's like, what are you doing? How's it working? What are the neatest tools that we're using? Um, you know, we always try to have like, an attorney come an hour early and we'll try to get an attorney either on probate or title, uh, somebody that's real estate related and um, have them kind of have an open session with anybody that wants to come up an hour early and talk about legal issues that relate to real estate. So, you know, I would take advantage of that if you can. Attorneys are happy to do it too, because, you know, it helps them build their business. And um, on top of that, we're trying to use guys that are, that we know firsthand are really engaged and actually working with investors. It's, it's a, it's a great meeting. I, I usually have a, my table set up and uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah. And just, and I, I, I try to get there early just so I can hear those, you know, whether it be an attorney or, you know, lead generation marketing, whatever the the topic may be. It's uh it's definitely a good meeting to, to check out and you can, you can get all this information on, on, on the 713 RIA and, and how to contact Ray at the show notes uh, at the private lender podcast.com. And I, I just want to, I want to throw in one last little jab at you. You're a brave man giving out your cell phone number for text messages on a podcast. So I hope it works out well for you in that regard. So <laughs> Ray, we'll I, I, uh, I, I want to thank you again. appreciate you coming on. You've honored me today. Thank you, Keith. And I, I can't wait to well, have you. Well, thanks for again. asking me. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I want to, and I, I can think of four or five more episodes we could record easily. So I will okay. definitely be in touch. So thank okay. you. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. All right. All right. That's going to do it. I'd like to thank Ray Sasser for coming on today's episode. And remember, you can go get all the contact information and information that was discussed during the episode today at the show notes page at the private lender podcast.com. This will be episode 26. And don't forget that in August, on August 25th and 26, 2018, I'll be in Dallas at the quest IRA expo, the first of its kind. So come on out, say hello and learn a ton, a ton of interesting things about self-directed IRAs that you might not have known about and just and find out just how powerful they can be. I'll see you guys on the next episode, but until then, I wish you happy and prosperous lending and investing. Take care. 
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Private Lender Podcast with your host, Keith Baker. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit privatelenderpodcast.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review, and we'll catch you next time.